Part two, the organizing stage, black power. The organizing stage encompasses most of the decade of the 1960s. The moment black people began to waken to their own potential and to state we are deserving, then the process of organizing ourselves began. No longer were we content to wait. We demanded our rights. The black community in Boston was of course dramatically influenced by the civil rights movement which spread from the South to our own neighborhoods in Northern cities. The March on Washington in 1963 was echoed by the March on Roxbury, organized that same year to dramatize the same issues. I'll never forget hearing the small son of a friend say, after hearing people involved in the civil rights struggle in North Carolina speak in Boston, Daddy, I'm no longer ashamed to be a Negro. That is heavy. From a negative self-image, we moved to the concept of black is beautiful. Our African heritage was reasserted by the artists and leaders of vision, such as Leroy Jones, later Imamu Emiri Baraka. Nina Simone saying, I wish I knew how it feels to be free. And Aretha Franklin saying, young, gifted, and black. We changed our dress, hairstyles, and the English language. We also began conscious changes in our values towards sharing community and the redistribution of resources. The celebration of Kwanzaa, the African ceremony of community and kinship became a tradition in Boston's black community. The War on Poverty and the Voting Rights Act passed and instituted in 1964 after John Kennedy's death were not enough to prevent the explosion of black anger and frustration in Watts in Los Angeles, California. Black communities across the country watched as Watts burned. We also watched the bitter struggle of black parents to gain control of the public schools in the Ocean Hill-Brownsville section of New York City. We listened to Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad, who exhorted us to wake up the sleeping giants of our heritage, our pride, and our power. The Black Panthers brought a new level of consciousness and a new tone to political community work, and in 1967, Stokely Carmichael electrified the country with a phrase that summarized and asserted the fundamental change in our self-image, Black power. The organizing stage was also mightily affected by the decision to escalate the war in Vietnam, coinciding with the peak of civil rights activism. This decision also conveniently distracted national attention away from the issues Black people were raising. It is no accident that both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. were killed at the points in their careers when they began challenging U.S. imperialism and began to gain an international consciousness about their work. They had also both been very successful, too successful, at getting people of color to be somebody. In Boston, we focused on the issues of education in much of our organizing, I ran for school committee three times, 1961, 63, and 65, in an attempt to gain some direct decision-making power over the education of black children. There were various attempts by parents to do for their children and themselves what the city government and the society were clearly unwilling to do. Community-initiated busing and boycotts of the schools are examples of these efforts. There was also considerable organizing activity on economic fronts through selective buying campaigns and even a work stoppage. 
In the area of housing, we began to take direct action to change the relationships of tenants and landlords and to take greater power over the housing development and management. In 1967, I moved to the Urban League of Boston and we began a period of intensive organizing on all these issues, taking charge of our own community development through community control. And in 1967, and again in 1969, we marshaled our resources to elect Tom Atkins to the Boston City Council. The organizing stage culminated earlier in the areas of education and housing, but efforts to organize politically and on economic development issues extended into the late 1960s and even early 1970s. It was during this decade of organizing that the community of color gained a tremendous range of skills, which we would apply to the next stage as we went beyond organizing to develop our own institutions. Chapter three, the schools. Stay out for freedom and the racial imbalance law. In 1962, the thrust for Boston's black community development was formulated around the issue of segregation in the public schools. In subsequent chapters, we will see how the black community organized to defend its rights in other areas as well, economic development, housing, and politics. Just about the time we began realigning our sights and perceiving that the school system was the culprit rather than our own children, several things happened at once. A group called Citizens for Boston Public Schools happened Uh, founded around 1960, began to consider running a slate of candidates for school committee. This coincided with the interest of those of us in the community who were looking for ways to get people in the community, particularly parents, directly involved in school issues. The citizens were deeply concerned about the way the Boston school system was operating, particularly the serious administrative and management problems, including not only graft, but also the lack of education for the children the schools were supposed to be serving. The citizens organized to attend school committee meetings, researched educational issues, and asked the school committee some searching questions. They soon realized that their approach was too low key and the only way to get results was to get a majority of votes on the school committee itself. The need for us to be involved at the decision-making level prompted me to find out more about the citizens' activities. When I learned that they were ready to run some candidates for school committee and that they were planning a meeting in the South End, I spoke to Reverend Roy Den Richardson, a minister at the Tremont Methodist Church and a member of the group. I told him I had some thoughts about what needed to happen in the schools and would be very interested to talk to people about my ideas. Herb Gleason, the president of CBPS, and Paul Parks came from the group to have a talk. We realized we had seen each other around. I had been involved in a lot of campaigns, particularly since I worked with young adults and sports teams. We talked about the issues as I saw them at the time, dropouts, the curriculum, black representation, black teacher and administrator role models, and vocational education. On the basis of that discussion, I went before the citizens to be interviewed. Interestingly enough, one of the other candidates they interviewed was Louise Day Hicks, whom they decided not to endorse. At that point, she had not yet made her famous, you know where I stand, pitch on busing. The citizens did endorse a slate of four, Arthur Gartland, William O'Connor, Nathaniel Young, and me. 
it is safe to say that our candidacy did not excite any great interest in the South End and Roxbury. In fact, the largest number of votes I received in any area was West Roxbury, which is not a predominantly black area. We didn't know the realities of running a political campaign at that time, but we did use the race to educate people regarding the problems in Boston schools. One of our primary goals was to motivate the residents to realize that the failures of the Boston school system were affecting children all across the city, not just in isolated neighborhoods. All of Boston's children, except for an elite few, were being cheated. We contended that a connection existed between the failure to deal with the cause of dropouts and the problems of welfare and crime. We also began to talk about de facto segregation as one of the major issues the school system was going to have to confront. It is interesting that at that time, I was labeled by some teachers and others as a supporter of busing, an accusation prophetic of the misunderstanding and emotionalism the busing issue would generate and continues to generate until this moment. 1963, stay out for freedom. An extraordinary level of activity in Boston was generated by the work of the Education Committee of the Boston branch of the NAACP. On June 4th, 1963, the Education Committee called for a public hearing before the Boston School Committee to discuss the priority issue, de facto segregation. On June 11th, the Education Committee presented its case to protect the well-being of the children in Boston schools. Forty other religious, civil rights, labor, and community groups supported the presentation. Some contributed testimony before the school committee. At that point, we were operating as a coalition. The school committee was unimpressed, however, and our requests were met with stolid inaction. The next day, June 12th, Canon James Breeden, chairman of the Citizens for Human Rights, announced a stay out for freedom to protest de facto segregation. NAACP negotiators insisted that none of the school system's important problems could be solved without public and official recognition of the de facto segregation condition. But the school committee argued that they could not recognize segregation because it did not exist. It still exists. Anyhow, Boston's newspapers published some alarming facts while the negotiations ensued. 40% of Boston's public school pupils attend classes in buildings 50 years old or older. Five of the 192 schools in use in Boston were built before 1885. Only 5% of the pupils attend schools less than 10 years old. All predominantly black schools, except two are over 50 years old. Of eight schools with classes in basements unfit for children's uses, seven are in predominantly black schools. Boston spends approximately $240 per pupil in predominantly black schools and $275 per pupil on a citywide basis. Of Boston's 2,800 teachers, only 10 are black and the black administrators number exactly four. That's changed a little bit. That has gotten better. All in assistant positions. Four of the predominantly Negro schools were recommended for abandonment in a 1962 study, and eight of them were recommended for renovation. The Garrison School, intended for an enrollment of 690, has 1,050 students. The Ellis, with a capacity of 640 children, has 823 enrolled. Both schools are predominantly Black. We tried changing the wording, but no matter what we said, the school committee simply would not, could not, 
admit that they had contributed to anything so wrong. There is no de facto segregation in Boston, said Mrs. Hicks dogmatically at the very first mention of this controversial term in the NAACP statement. Kindly proceed to educational matters. Perhaps the most important source of pressure on the school committee was the community's highly visible support for the NAACP negotiators. While the hearing progressed in the chambers at 15 Beacon Street, reported the Boston Papers, more than 800 Negroes assembled outside the building and at City Hall, where they sang the songs of protest that are being sung in the Southern civil rights battles. The work of Melnea Cass, Ruth Batson, and Tom Atkins enabled the Black community to pressure the school committee in the streets as well as at the negotiation table. Public opinion was fanned to a higher and higher pitch, the emotions roused by the frustrating meetings with the powers in charge, coupled with the impact of parents discovering their children were bright and eager and capable, produced a powerful and volatile source of energy. Finally, we decided that a stay out was the sort of short-term demonstration that could capture and channel all that energy to dramatize the concern and determination of the black community and to present the horrifying facts to a wider audience. The presence of officials on the other side revealed the effectiveness of the tactic. Governor Endicott Peabody, in a last-minute effort to avoid the stay-out, stated that de facto segregation was a reality and government agencies should take the responsibility to change the condition. Governor Peabody declined to be specific on his personal feelings regarding the situation, reported the Boston Papers, but he said he hoped the boycott would be avoided. The police commissioner was on special alert and Superintendent Gillis was to meet with President Kennedy at the White House Wednesday, where he said he would insist that Boston public schools are integrated. Attorney General Edward Brooke was called on again by Mrs. Hicks to inform Negro leaders of state laws concerning compulsory education and to take steps to ensure attendance by Negro pupils tomorrow. Brooke himself is reported to have brushed off charges by Mrs. Hicks that a number of white children, including girls, had been threatened with violence if they refused to join the boycott. This talk of violence comes from alarmists. The papers reported him as saying, this is not Birmingham or Jackson, this is Boston. To complete the series of public reactions, the local juvenile court judge warned parents via a newspaper legal ad that they could be jailed or fined if they allowed their children to join the protest. Louis Lyons reported on the day of the stayout that there were varying estimates of students out of school, 5,000 according to one source, 3,000 according to the Christian Science Monitor and Associated Press, and 2,000 from the Globe, using unofficial figures. By either figure, Lyons said, an extraordinary demonstration for one organized within a few days, largely by newer young leadership. Vote on Tuesday. It was painfully clear during the 1963 elections for school committee that Bostonians generally were not aware that the entire school system operated on an elitist basis, which worked against the vast majority of students. The operational biases were epitomized in the attitude of Joseph Lee of the school committee, who commented that the people in Charleston, a largely white working class area of Boston, were only interested in working the docks so there was certainly no point worrying about sending those students to college. Once again, we concentrated on using the election for the education of the voters and to dramatize the issues facing all Bostonians concerned about the quality of education available to their children. 
The Citizens for Boston Public Schools endorsed another slate of candidates, William O'Connor, Arthur Gartland, John Carney, and me, and we set out across the city. In their endorsement statements, the citizens tried to clarify some of the misunderstandings that arose in the course of the protests. They carefully pointed out that the NAACP had never made a demand for large-scale busing, a notion which seemed to terrify voters and which the school committee did nothing to dispel. The citizens' pamphlet explained that instead of massive busing, the NAACP rather demanded that district lines be redrawn and new schools located so as to diminish racial imbalance. As a candidate, I tried to clarify the critical points. The time had come to lay aside our prejudices and to work toward overcoming the terrific loss of human resources that was built into the Boston school system. I talked about the need to help black youngsters feel as though they were a positive part of the society and to assure them that they were no less valuable as people than any other children. There was evidence that irreparable damage in terms of gaining a positive self-image had already been done to the black child in a white-controlled all-black school by the time she or he has reached high school age. There were a number of specific suggestions to improve our schools. One, decentralize the school system to have programs geared to the needs of the varied communities, greater parent involvement. Two, improve communications between the school and community. Three, round-the-clock community schools for public use. Four, improved selection and utilization of instructional, educational, media equipment, and materials. Two days before the primary election, a march on Roxbury organized by the NAACP took place to express support for civil rights efforts in Birmingham and elsewhere to dramatize the poor school conditions in Boston and extend the challenge preferred by the March on Washington on August 28th. To build an integrated society, 10,000 people, black and white, marched to the site of the Sherwin School, an atrocious example of the dilapidated, outmoded facilities relegated to black use. Orzel Billingsley, Birmingham attorney and member of the Baptist Church in which four little girls were murdered by a bomb, declared about the school, I don't see how it could be used for Negro or white education. In a speech to the demonstrators, I reminded them, if we do not march on the voting polls like we have marched here today, we will never see the end of de facto segregation in Boston. The following day, the Sherwin School mysteriously burned to the ground. On Tuesday, the vote reflected the feelings and fears stirred by the protests and actions of Boston's black people. The five incumbents took the top five slots with Louise Day Hicks in the overwhelming lead. Gartland, the only incumbent endorsed by the NAACP and Citizens for Boston Public Schools, lagged a poor fifth, only 2,000 votes ahead of the sixth-place candidate, and nearly 38,000 votes behind Mrs. Hicks. I, too, found the vote a demonstration of widespread anti-Black feeling in Boston, in spite of its reputation for a liberal viewpoint. In sum, I felt the election provided us all with a pointed reminder about reality. Boston was responsive to the plight of Black people, neither educationally, financially, nor psychologically. The re-election of the school committee made it abundantly clear that the hardest work lay ahead, and we were forced to abandon our naive notion that Boston whites wanted integration. Although the election temporarily def deflated the momentum from the mounting waves of activism and the increasing awareness of the Black community situation, 
we began girding for the next round. We had ample evidence of the opponent's resistance, and we laid our plans accordingly. The Racial Imbalance Law During 1964, the germs of protest and action sown hastily in 1963 came to fruition more dramatically, deliberately, and explicitly than ever before. The momentum generated by several activities, the Stay Out for Freedom, the Stop Day Chapter 4, and the the Memorial for Medgar Evers, also in Chapter 4, was somewhat stimmied by the election results in the 1963 school committee race. However, the NAACP, still spearheading the drive for equal education, initiated a new strategy. Plans for a new school Stay Out for Freedom were underway by January 1964. Canon James Breeden of the Episcopal Church, requested by the support of the NAACP and after lengthy debate, local versus national NAACP positions, support was unanimously given. Community groups and local leaders took sides for and against the tactic and purpose of the stay out. The Massachusetts Civil Liberties Union found no legal irregularities in the plan, particularly in view of the school committee's failure to take action on the matter of de facto segregation. Under these circumstances, read their press release, resort to a stay out becomes a reluctant but legitimate attempt to emphasize the importance and the urgency of the issue of school segregation. We see no legitimate basis for objection to the choice which the organizers, parents, and children have made. Cardinal Richard Cushing expressed his disapproval, but other church groups, including students at Boston College, voiced their support. The first ruling by State Attorney General Edward Brooke that the stay out was illegally caused much consternation and heightened the morality versus legality conflict. Just before he left on vacation, February 14th, Brooke made a second ruling on the responsibility of parents and boycott leaders, which laid primary responsibility on parents rather than stay out leaders. But the ruling left substantial uncertainty about actual liability of reprimand procedures, stating that the matter finally rested in the Supreme Court. In the meantime, support, much of it generated by clergy, mounted in the suburbs. In my personal capacity as chairman of the Northeast Commission of Social Action of the United Synagogue of America, I urge all my fellow citizens, regardless of faith or race, and especially my fellow Jews, to act in support of the school stay out for freedom on February 26th. Dr. Stephen S. Schwarzschild. Literature circulated, urging parents to keep their children out of public school on February 26, emphasizing the similarity of the stay-out objectives to demands made 115 years earlier by a group of Black parents to the Boston School Committee. This stay-out was specifically aimed at getting recognition of de facto segregation, for though the 1963 stay-out had yielded some small advances in the number of Black counselors and Black teachers and the acquisition of new textbooks, No progress had been made toward trying to get at the root of the problems. Segregated schools tell our children, you are black, you are different, you are inferior. And the white children, you are white, you don't have to know about Negroes, you are superior. Our children carry this lie and the hurt it causes with them into high school, where it affects their work, their relations with others, their chances of going on with their studies, and their chance of living without segregation. And they carry this hurt and this battle with them throughout their lives as we do. Stay out, hand out. 
Plans for protests similar to those staged in Boston were being forged in 10 other cities four years after the famous sit-in at the Woolworths lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina. In spite of the momentum of the controversy, more than 20% of Boston's 92,844 public school children missed classes today as the second boycott in eight months hit the city, cited the Evening Boston Globe. An unexpected 9,000 students, including 1,000 preschool children, attended freedom schools throughout the city of Boston. Superintendent um, Orenberger claimed today's demonstration was a success for no one. It was a regrettable loss to all those involved. Real freedom, he maintained, is manifested only through obedience to the law. Unhappily, due to boycotts and other events of late, a color line is being drawn now that never before existed. Surprised by the number of students who stayed out, the media tried to downplay the day. The boycott did not measure up to the expectations of its leaders, whose goal was to get most of the 92,844 pupils to stay away from school, failing to mention the freedom classes. To those of us in the middle, however, the view was somewhat different. As principal of the South End House, I saw kids everywhere, excited, aware that they were directly involved in changing the schools that shaped so much of their time. And it made an enormous impact on the children to watch their parents caring enough to make this sort of massive effort to communicate to those in power. The parents worked to make things happen and the children imitated their spirit and determination. A great amount of political and cultural education took place for students and parents alike. The stay out showed us all that there were a huge number of resources in our community, many of them underutilized. For example, the church has got to look at how they could use their facilities more than one day a week. The stay out demonstrated more clearly than any other activity that the community does have the capability to get organized and to act in its own behalf, a fact that would pay off somewhere down the line. As an instrument for rousing awareness, focusing attention, and getting people involved in community action, the stay-out proved to be successful. There was no question, moreover, that the stay-out raised consciousness outside the community because the issue was stated in religious, political terms, which forced a lot of people, including some high levels of government and clergy, to take a stand. The stay-out also prompted ongoing, ongoing classes in Black history after school and in the evenings. It brought to the surface some of the more sympathetic teachers in the school system. And in the long run, it helped create the atmosphere in which the 1965 racial imbalance law could be considered and passed in the Massachusetts state legislature. We're coming out. Again, stated the staff report of the 1966 hearings before the Massachusetts Advisory Committee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights regarding segregation in Boston public schools. No significant results were obtained. The judgment may seem harsh in the light of the positive effect of the stayout on the community, but by and large, the stayout failed to loosen the school committee's unyielding position. The advisory group appointed by the school committee as requested by the NAACP was unacceptable, so other routes, predominantly legal, were chosen. Several other significant events in 1964 prepared the way for intensified activity in 1965 to 1966. In early March 1964, the State Board of Education and Committee on Racial Imbalance and Education, oh, where was I? Um, Dr. Owen B. Kiernan appointed an advisory committee 
on racial imbalance in education. The committee was asked to examine the racial composition of the public schools in Massachusetts to determine whether or not there is racial imbalance and to consider ways in which school systems can deal constructively with racially imbalanced conditions. Now, I have to stop for a minute because I can tell you growing up in California, um, things haven't changed. So obviously this helped, but it didn't work. Um, somehow things ended up segregated all over again. And I think class, I think a lot of it has to do with class, not just race, but all right, I'm going to continue. By July, the committee had concluded that segregation did exist in 78% of the public schools in Massachusetts. That is 78% of public schools have none or less than 5% non-whites and that racial imbalance was detrimental to sound education in no less than six ways. Racial imbalance damages the self-confidence of Negro children. Racial imbalance reinforces the prejudices of children regardless of their color. Racial imbalance does not prepare the child for integrated life in a multiracial community, nation, and world. Racial imbalance impairs the opportunities of many Negro children to prepare for the vocational requirements of our technological society. Racial imbalance often results in a gap in the quality of education in our society. Racial imbalance in the public schools represents a serious conflict with the American creed of equal opportunity. Significantly, the Kiernan Report proposed a series of steps to begin alleviating racial imbalance. Among them, busing were necessary to exchange students in grades three to six in order to equalize black and white enrollment. The committee also recommended state legislation to cope with racial imbalance by one, charging school committees with the task of eliminating imbalance, two, preventing further construction of schools that would be imbalanced, and three, withholding state financial aid to communities with imbalanced schools. For my part, I found the report lacking in specific provisions for community involvement, which seemed to me crucial to implementation. The proposal did not recognize the importance of parent participation and selection of administrators and teachers. Additionally, provisions for parent input in curriculum development and choice of books and materials to be used in the school were ignored. It did not alter the power relations between parents, community, and the administrators and teachers in the school. In the meantime, a group of parents with children at the Garrison School were informed that their children were being transferred to the Boardman School in the fall. The children would have to walk past heavy construction on both sides of the street to school with conditions no better than those they were leaving. The parents brought suit against the school committee to halt the transfer and to have their children bus to another school because of the hazardous conditions. On September 13, 1967, the injunction was denied and the suit dismissed. Appeal was filed, but no action was taken. As a result, the Boardman parents made the decision to hire their own bus to transport their children to the Peter Fanway School, which they proceeded to do with the help of funding from numerous private sources. The Boardman parents initiated busing in Boston and paved the way for more extensive community-sponsored busing in the following months. As early as 1963, State Representative Royal Bowling Sr. had submitted a bill, only 14 words at the time, which was to prohibit communities with racially imbalanced schools from receiving state aid. The bill was killed in 1964. In 1965, he refiled the bill, 
but was so certain it would be killed that he did not even appear at the public hearing. In the spring, the effects of the Kiernan report, which made a similar recommendation for legislation to withhold funds, were being felt, and as a consequence, the bill was revived and combined, first with one from Education Commissioner Owen B. Kiernan, then with bills submitted by Governor Volp and Senator Cohen from Brookline. The bill covered such items as the responsibilities of school committees to move against racial imbalance, the conduct of schools in regard to racial matters, prohibition of state aid to racially imbalanced towns, and annual reports to the legislature on the efforts to abolish imbalance. In four months, the signing ceremony took place and the first such legislation on racial imbalance in the country became law. The bill was notable for the large number of community organizations and individuals who participated in the drafting and lobbying process. The time, at long last, was right for the passage of this law. I attribute its having been passed to three major factors, good organization, the atmosphere set up by the demonstration of the community, demonstrations of the community, the behavior of the Boston School Committee, and the fact that the bill was non-threatening to enough of the state legislators to get it passed. The organization was largely a coalition of black people, Jewish people, and other white liberals, particularly the suburban fair housing groups, which had succeeded in pushing legislation on that front. The Kiernan Report had a strong influence on the climate of the times. This was also the height of the civil rights wave of activism across the nation, which was at least temporarily stirring, prompting, activating the conscience of the nation. Dr. Martin Luther King's visit to the Boston Common in the spring of 1965 helped to emphasize the fact that many onlookers were drawing comparisons between Boston and the South, which may have been too close for comfort for image-conscious legislators. It also helped to have Reverend Vernon Carter literally camping on the doorstep of the school committee with picket signs until the legislation passed. Many legislators, I suspect, looked upon the bill as a means to control the Catholic groups which had run the school system and the city for so long. Many of the bill's supporters were from suburbs or areas of Boston that would be little affected. Besides, the bill contained a voluntary clause that made it impossible for busing to be mandatory. Most black people, I think, looked at it as a step toward the attention their children needed, but suspected it would not be enforced and were bothered by its one-way implications bus black students, not white. I testified at the hearing on the bill that unless it required two-way busing, it would not work. As written, it fostered the prejudice that white children were better than black children. I also questioned the voluntary clause about busing since all other aspects of schooling are mandatory regardless of parental biases. The law's impact was twofold. Immediate increased pressure was placed on the Boston School Committee members, though in the long run it served to disguise further de facto segregation. In actuality, the school committee was able to dodge its pressure simply by refusing to agree to its definitions. It had an immediate and disastrous effect on the next school committee election. Arthur Gartland, the one voice of reason and compassion, lost. In and of itself, the racial imbalance law was not enough to create meaningful change within the public school system. The school committee was adamant and rejected a proposal to transport students from the crowded Gibson, Endicott, and Hyde Everett schools to schools in largely white areas, a practice which was not entirely new for the school system. The only alternative Orenberger announced was double sessions, a state of affairs that many parents could not tolerate, financially or educationally. 
Parents banded together and talked about a temporary busing program to dramatize their plight and get their children into better schools. By September, they had obtained a list of vacant seats. It had to be stolen, according to Mrs. Ellen Jackson. An Operation Exodus was born to transport 475 children, increasing to 976 children by 1966. The money, $65,000 a year, was raised through mothers' marches, community events, and various benefactors. In the tradition of the Boardman parents' effort, Exodus tried to solve a community problem imposed by the external powers by rallying community resources and taking the initiative from the officials, blocking the request through proper channels. The 1965 school committee race was an astounding example of voters refusing to deal with the mounting evidence of incompetence, political opportunism, and outright fraud on the part of some members of the committee. The race quickly grew heated as the citizens group hammered away at the major issues, fiscal responsibility, outmoded courses, particularly vocational, condition of school buildings, teacher recruitment, and racial imbalance. The facts were incriminating. Of the 5,000 students leaving the school system each year, 1,500 or more than 25% or more than 25% were dropouts. What better indicator of no confidence in the school system? As a counselor, I had talked to numerous kids to whom I could offer virtually no options. It was always a shock to realize that a kid of 17 was unemployable and possessed obsolete skills due to the lack of training she, he had received in school. The majority of children were in schools older than their own grandparents. The schools loomed dark and dreary as prisons, but no jail would have been allowed to have cracks in the wall or crumbling plaster, broken windows, and decayed woodwork. The primary voting exposed the vast distance between the voters and the issues. We tried to be optimistic because all citizens' candidates made the final election. Our theme was, we're coming out. I actually came in sixth and closed the gap between other candidates and myself. And for the first time in the city's history, a greater percentage of black voters than whites went to the ballots in a primary election in an off year. The fact remained that Louise Day Hicks pulled almost 90% of the votes cast. One in three voters apparently voted only for her. In the last round, we challenged Mrs. Hicks head-on, charging that she, in particular, was using the fear-laden issues of busing and race for her own political advantage, sidetracking parents from understanding the failure of the system under her guidance. In a televised interview of candidates, George H. Parker of the Citizen Slate stated bluntly, there are people who would rather see the city torn apart by racial strife than face the issues. Even... Boston's Chamber of Commerce chastised the school committee's actions in fear of serious economic harm to Boston's financial state. The Greater Boston Labor Council refused to endorse Mrs. Hicks, terming support for her a mockery of their principles. Nevertheless, her victory in November was definitive. Though voices were raised to deny that the vote was racist, the evidence was clear that almost three-quarters of the Boston electorate were touched by the incumbent committee's blatant appeal to bigotry. Mrs. Hicks exemplified this bigotry when she said, these industrious children, the Chinese, listed as non-white in the school census, don't want their school racially balanced. I don't think they enjoy being called, in effect, Negroes. 
It was inconceivable that the voters elected Hicks and company for their educational achievement. If nothing else, the citizen slate had made the choices distinctly clear. We also learned that in a citywide election, black voter solidarity was not enough to swing the balance against the entrenched racism. Arthur Gartland lost, marking the last attempt to form a citywide coalition on school committee elections. These years were a period when increased awareness and information about the situation in Boston schools pushed parents to action. Parents took the safety of their children into their own hands through the formation of Exodus. The community rallied behind the NAACP Education Committee's challenge to the school committee over de facto segregation, holding the two dramatic school stay-out days. The cause was taken up legislatively through the racial imbalance law. Three times we attempted to get a liberal slate onto the school committee. Although some of the results from this period of intense activity were disappointing and even foreboding, there were other outcomes. The black community was fully warned about the deeply entrenched resistance of whites. The community had gone too far to turn back. The battle lines were drawn and we knew we would continue the struggle as long as necessary. Next week, I will be reading the next chapter. So, on that note, I hope everyone has a good night or um, whatever time you choose to listen to this podcast. Sorry it went over a half an hour, but that was chapter three on the schools. And I think like a microcosm in a macrocosm, um, this book still applies to things today. So I'm out in solidarity 